0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to Luke in chapter 3. Luke in chapter 3, we're going to be in verses 1 through 14. If you're in a scripture journal, that'll be page 24, all right? So we continue our series through the gospel of Luke, and take the first half of this chapter 3, and then finish the the second half next week. Um, If you got it, say, I got it it also be behind me on the screen in my translation as well for you to follow along there. Let's go ahead and uh, read this together. Luke 3, starting verse 1 down to verse 14. God's Word says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, Pontius Pilate being governor of Judea, Herod being tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of the region of Iteria, And every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight. And the rough places shall become level ways. And all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up Soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anybody by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. <laughs> Amen. This is God's word made God right. It's eternal truce on all of our hearts. Hurricanes, wildfires, droughts, and deep freezes made 2021 one of the costliest and deadliest years for natural disasters in recent U.S history reads the first line of a story published monday at forbes.com according to the national oceanic and atmospheric administration the colossal events of 2021 generated about 145 billion dollars in economic damage almost triple the annual average of 51.4 billion since 1980 making 2021 the third costliest year for natural disasters in over four decades The three costliest disasters last year were category four Hurricane Ida in August, surprise February cold temperatures that caused power outages in Texas and Central USA, and a spat of wildfires in California and other Western states. Some 688 Americans died in 2021 disasters. The sixth highest death toll since 1980 and nearly double the average of 361 deaths per year over that period. And now as bad as all that was, The truth of the matter is, it could have been worse, couldn't it? This is not, of course, to minimize the loss of life or loss of property, which are horrible and lamentable, but we are privileged, yes? We're more privileged than any people in history in that we live in a time where there are several layers of warnings in place, yes? For coming disasters for us to take shelter or flee, Those who live in areas that are about to get hit with disasters such as hurricanes or tornadoes or floods or freezing temperatures are usually warned several days in advance through TV broadcasts, the radio, social media, sirens in order that they may prepare. So it could have been worse because those who had the means to flee had fled, right? The coming disaster, all because the warnings that were given. You might think of a time in history when This wasn't the case. The first thing that came to my mind was like Pompeii. You guys know Pompeii in 79 AD? There's a mountain at Pompeii called Vesuvius, and it began to make noise and rumble. There were earthquakes, minor earthquakes, for four straight days. But you know what the people did in response? They didn't do anything because they didn't know what was going on until it turned out that Vesuvius was a volcano that erupted and buried the whole city. it out nearly the entire population. Why? They didn't have the type of technology and warning systems that we are privileged to have today, right? If there was warning at Pompeii, it would have saved perhaps the whole city. The warnings could have been like the warnings we get now when a hurricane or some other devastating event is drawing nigh, which is flee the coming disaster. Flee, make haste, take action, lest you suffer devastation. A disaster is coming. You must respond. The warnings essentially are... Telling us, right? And this is what John's message is in our text this morning. John knows through the word of God, through the spirit of God, that a judgment is coming and he's acting as a warning siren to anyone who would hear. But the warning isn't of natural disaster, but of coming judgment from the promised Messiah. But the warning is not just for his original audience only, but it's to us, too, and we would have ears to hear because his alarm is as urgent, if not more so to us than those who audibly heard these words 2,000 years ago. So in our time together, let's consider three points, okay? Point number one, we will call the warning, okay? The warning, and the two points after that will correspond to two responses. So let's consider first the warning, all right? So Luke opens in verses 1 and 2 with the historical setting, setting the scene for us. He's doing what he's been doing all along, which is placing these events in real space and real time to help us see that, one, these things really did happen in history, and two, to help us locate when they occurred. So in 1 and 2, you'll notice he lists seven rulers, (coughs) excuse me, Seven rulers in descending order of power. He starts with Tiberius Caesar. So we have a new Caesar since last time we saw him mention one, right? Previously we saw it was Augustus, but Augustus died in 14 AD and was replaced with Tiberius who will rule all throughout John and Jesus' ministries. And the information that Luke gives us, we could place the beginning of John's ministry to 29 AD, okay, give or take a year. But you also notice, this is curious, isn't it? He mentions the high priest, but he mentions how many? Two, when really, there could only be one. Why? Well, Luke is suggesting to us that the power was shared and that Annas, although no longer priest, still had a hold on the religious environment of Israel. And you would not be surprised at all to learn that Annas was in cahoots with Herod and Pilate and was essentially in their pockets as well. But again, why give all this information? We know Luke doesn't care much for people with earthly power, and he plans to mostly ignore them, like he's been doing all along. But he does this to show us not only do these things really happen, not only when they happen, but because he wants us to see that a better ruler and a better religious leader is now on the scene, which is who? Jesus. A better king and a better kingdom has come, And Luke is anticipating that this better king and this better kingdom that he brings will clash with the rulers of his day, which is inevitable, and which will actually happen later in this chapter. So, says Luke, John is hanging out in the desert, as people are wont to do, right? When the word of the Lord comes to him, and he went out to proclaim a baptism of repentance and for the forgiveness of sins. And he tells us, Luke does, This is to fulfill the prophecy of Isaiah 40. That a forerunner for the Messiah would come, which Luke quotes for us in verses 4 through 6. As forerunner, John's task was to, doesn't it tell us, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight, and bring down the haughty. Essentially, John was to prepare hearts to receive the message that the Messiah will bring of the coming of the kingdom and a new way to relate to God and man. Forerunners, you understand, this isn't a, 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 just a Christian or Bible word, they were common in this era, but they would literally make physical paths straight for dignitaries and rulers when they would travel. They would literally smooth out the roads. They would remove physical obstacles like large rocks to make the way easier to traverse. I think of, for example, and I'm sure I'm going to say this wrong, the Gulong Tunnel in China. Have any of you ever heard of that? After the service. Go look this up on YouTube, okay? It's a, a, there was a small village, there is a small village in Gulong, China, so remote that it was essentially cut off from civilization. And the Chinese government ignored their pleas, the people, to build a road to, so that they can have quicker access to civilization. So the people decided they'd just do it themselves. And what they did was they literally carved a road into the side of the mountain, and now it's one of the world's most famous roads. Over the course of five years, they used primitive tools to carve out rocks and pave the road to make travel efficient and to give them access out of the village and others' access in, in a way that was previously not possible. John is forerunning Jesus in that he is carving a road for Jesus to come behind to travel on. He, he's doing the work of preparing the way, but his work is aimed at the heart of people so that they will be ready to receive what Jesus brings when he traverses the same road with a similar message. Do you see? And what is the message John brings? (coughs) What is the warning that John delivers? We could sum up John's message in one word. Are you ready? This is John's message. Repent. It's an urgent and real and important message, and it's the same one, that Jesus preaches when he gets on the scene repent for the kingdom of God is at hand see with the advent of the Messiah the end of the age has come the Old Testament repeatedly points to the coming of God's promised King and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that John will mention in verse 16 as the signals that the end has come And John has come to warn them and prepare them for this because with the end of the age comes judgment. Look what John says in verse 7. What's he say? You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from what? It's right there. Just look down. The wrath to come. Now in Matthew, John is directing these words specifically at the religious leaders. All right? But Luke tells us, he says this to the crowd. But in any case, what is he warning them of? The wrath to come. But what does he mean when he calls them a brood of vipers? What he's doing is painting a vivid picture that they would be familiar with. When there would be a brush fire in the Palestinian wilderness, guess what would happen? The snakes would come out of their holes, and they would flee from the fire that was ignited. And further, you know this, the picture of Snakes in the Bible is associated consistently with who? Satan. And he's saying they were children of the devil, sons of vipers. He would not be a popular preacher today, would he? And so John asked a provocative question. Are you ready to run from your holes in recognition that destructive fire draws near? That's what he's asking them. And wrath is clearly pointing to the day of the Lord's judgment. And so, John is warning them and us that the end of the age has dawned and that judgment awaits. Everything he says, John, in this passage, is tinged with our needing to turn away, to repent, and come to the Lord, lest we be consumed, because what we deserve is to be consumed. And that is very bad news. But with the advent of the Messiah, it doesn't just come judgment, but comes an opportunity of being saved from God's wrath, because it turns out that God loves you so much that he's willing to absorb that wrath so that you won't face it. But you must turn, do you see? You must humble yourself. You must see, verse 3, that you have things you need to repent of. That, verse 3, you have sins that need to be forgiven, That, verse 5, you need to be made straight. That, verse 5, your rough places need to become level. That, verse 6, you need salvation. And that, verse 8, you need to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Do you see? (coughs) The warning is dire, and it's real, but it isn't hopeless. You know, recently, I don't know if you saw this, Netflix came out with a movie that was supposed to be like a, a satire with a star-studded cast, and it was like the second most watched movie they ever released called Don't Look Up. Did you guys see that? Has, have it, has anybody watched that? A couple of y'all? I didn't think it'd be up y'all's alley. I didn't watch it. I just read the spoilers, okay? But essentially, the premise is that a meteor is heading for the earth, okay, that will kill everyone, and there's stuff they could try to do to stop it, but in the end, everyone is going to die, right? There's no hope. It's a bleak affair indeed. John isn't warning them and telling them like those kooky fellows who used to stand on street corners with the sandwich signs and the megaphone saying the end is near with the message that there's no hope, right? He's not saying God is going to get you and there's nothing you could do. Just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die, like the Romans said. No, John is saying God's wrath is coming for you and you deserve it, and you earned it, but he's provided a way of escape through his one and only way of salvation embodied in a person who intends to absorb that wrath. But you must respond. You must repent. Friends, I hope you understand this is a very real warning. Do you understand that? In fact, if the end was nigh... When John preached this 2,000 years ago, it's more urgent at this very second than it's ever been. Yes? Because see what he says in verse 9? He says the axe is laid at the root of the tree, which is an explicit picture of an axe primed to chop down and clear away those who are not fruitful and not repentant. John's audience doesn't realize how close it is But John says the axe is already primed to chop and clear away the unfruitful. John is not making idle threats. Every single person will stand before the throne of God and face his judgment. Because not only is the Messiah a savior to those who repent, he's a judge for those who do not. But don't you see, it is only, says John, the unfruitful, the unrepentant, who need to be concerned with the axe's falling. We must let this be real to us and let it propel us to urgent discipleship and evangelism. The judgment of God is impending on all humanity. This warning is real and it's true and it's urgent. Do you remember four years ago almost to the day, in Hawaii there was an alert that was sent to the whole state. It was on TV, on the radio, text messages on everybody's phone. And it said, this is what it said in all capital letters, ballistic missile threat inbound to Hawaii, seek immediate shelter, this is not a drill. That's what everybody's phone got blown up with, and it was on TV, radio, it took 38 minutes for them to say, oh, hey guys, like, there's actually no missile, and there never was, our bad, right? It, it turned out to be a mistake. There was an urgent warning, but it wasn't real at all. There was no missile. There was no need for shelter. It was a false warning. John isn't doing that. He isn't giving false warnings. he, He isn't raising false alarms, making people unduly nervous or anxious. He is saying, as sent by the word of God, this is real. And because of the love of the Lord, a way of escape has been provided. But unless you repent, you will be consumed. And that's the message Jesus will give. It's the message the apostles will give. It's the message the church has preached for 2,000 years. And it should be the message we preach too, shouldn't it? Because you'll leave here today. And you will drive home. Or you will drive to lunch. And you will see car after car occupied by people who will someday die. And they will stand before the Lord and be judged. And you will see family today, and this week, and this month, and this year, And every last one will die someday and will stand before the Lord. And you'll go to work tomorrow and this week, and you'll see coworkers and clients and customers, and they will all one day die, and they will be judged by the Lord. And unless they have repented or repent before that day, they will meet God's consuming wrath. Which is why it's urgent for us to take the message of repent and turn to Christ He is the only means of escape. And man, that seems dark in our relativistic and self-help and Instagram-polished world, but we need to hear that bad news if we're going to get the good news and if we're going to see just how amazing God's grace is and just how loving he is to come and take on that wrath so that we don't have to, even though he didn't deserve the death and even though we do. And once you get that, yes, I have rebelled against God, I have been God's enemy. I have not only things to repent of, but my whole disposition of life to repent of. That I have sins, that I have transgressed God's holy law, that I deserve the wrath to come. Once you get that, and once you let that settle in your bones, only then will you see and feel and understand the depths of the love of God. To send Christ to come and live and die and rise so that you could escape the judgment that you deserve in the end. But even better, enjoy him in the here and the now and forever. And once you see this, you must respond. Well, how? Well, John shows us two major ways which will serve as our final two points, okay? So point number two, you could write this, respond by repenting. Respond by repenting. This is, as noted, the main crux of John's message repentance and in fact it's important for luke who mentions the words repent and repentance more than all other gospel writers put together but what is repentance anyway some say it's a change of mind maybe you've heard that before some say it's a change of heart some would say it's a change of direction but the truth is they're all true And repentance isn't complete without all three of those things. Joel Green, in his commentary, has a good way of describing it by saying that those who come to John for this baptism of repentance were signifying their surrender to God's aim, distancing themselves from past ways of life oriented away from God's purposes, and professing their allegiance to His will. They were changing their loyalties, embracing the community of God's people, and returning to their everyday lives, accepting the vocation to reflect God's behavior that befits children of God. I think that's the best definition I can find. If I spoke too fast for you to write that down, let me know after service and I'll give it to you, okay? John Piper puts it like this. He says, repentance is the altering of what we rely on in life, what we hope in, what we're counting on for salvation in the age to come and for help now, the repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins is turning away from what we are by birth or achieved by effort to rely wholly on mercy, God's free and sovereign grace. So repentance is a recognition of our need and our sinfulness and our inability, and it's also recognition of the offer of forgiveness that it can only be found in God's Christ, who is surpassingly great, incredibly merciful, and more beautiful than anything the world has to offer. And what John shows us is that it is only the humble who realize their need and Christ's greatness who will repent. The proud don't repent. The haughty don't repent because it's a, it doesn't it take a lot of humility to say, "I am wrong." I have been wrong. I have placed my trust in self and things of earth, and I need something outside of myself for rescue. Like we said a couple weeks ago, if you want God's grace, all you need is need. All you need is nothing, but most people don't have it. And this is the picture that the Isaiah quote Luke gives us as painting. And it's what the songs of Mary and Zacharias showed us too. The proud need not apply unless they're willing to be humbled. Because the kingdom of God is only for the humble and the meek and the needy and the weak and the hungry. But see again what John says in verse 8. He says, don't think because you're ethnically Jewish and have Abraham as your father that you'll escape God's wrath. In other words, Abrahamic heritage guarantees nothing before God. The most religious pedigree by itself is not adequate source of protection before the judgment seat of Christ. Because what could God do? Doesn't John tell us? He can raise up children from Abraham from what? The very stones. He can take literal inanimate objects and make them children for Abraham. What's he saying there? He's saying that the issue of becoming God's child is not a matter of inheritance, but of God's power and work alone. Darrell Bach says the picture of God producing life out of inanimate object attributes adoption into God's family to the work of God and not to the natural rights of having certain genealogy. The emphasis throughout this section on repentance is that God alone provides salvation, right? We need forgiveness of sins. We need atonement for them, but we cannot make atonement. We can never do enough to pay back the debt. It must be absorbed by someone else and then forgiven. It is salvation, verse 6, of God. If it is to be done, God must be the one to do it salvation is found nowhere else but we must see our needs see our debts see our sinfulness see god's greatness and repent and trust in him and even that recognition must be a work of god because we won't see it on our own because on our own we're sinners who think we don't need anything so we cannot say this enough salvation is a work entirely of who of God through Christ imparted by the Spirit, and it can be found nowhere else. Your family background, your heritage, your country, your state, your name, your reputation, your deeds get you nothing before the throne of God. You must repent and give your allegiance to Christ. That's what matters. Just think think of the example at the end of the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus himself gives. You guys know this verse. He says, at the end of the age, people will stand before him, and they'll stand before his judgment bench, and they'll say, didn't we prophesy in your name? You remember this passage? Didn't we drive out demons in your name? Didn't we do many miracles in your name? What did Jesus tell him? Depart from me. I never knew you. Who's Jesus talking to? He's talking to people who had, like, varsity-level deeds, right? And they thought they were doing it for him. And they were religious people. They were probably good citizens. They probably voted the right way, and they were considered good, and they had great religious resumes, but they didn't know Jesus. They were trusting in their deeds, weren't they? Their accomplishments, their name. In In a word, they were trusting in themselves because What was the contents of their plea before Christ? Didn't we? Didn't we? Didn't we? It was all about what they did. They were trusting in who they were, not in who Christ was. And friend, we live in a culture where many people believe themselves to be Christians. Isn't that fair to say? Because they were raised that way or they went to church or they prayed a prayer one time, or they were good citizens, or they're nice to their spouses, or many other things. But they're not truly Christian because none of those things save you. Only Christ does. Now, Dean and Sarah, in his book, The Unsaved Christian, takes Jesus' words in Matthew 7, and he applies them to the cultural Christianity of our day like this. He says, didn't we say grace before dinner? Didn't we vote our values? Didn't we believe prayer should be allowed in school? Didn't we go to church? Didn't we believe in God? Didn't we get misty eyes whenever we heard God bless America sung at a baseball game? Didn't we give money to the church? Didn't we treat women with respect? Didn't we own Bibles? Didn't we get the baby christened by the priest? Didn't we want America to turn to its Christian roots? Didn't we stay married and faithful? Are those things bad? Not necessarily, but do any of those things save you? Do they? Do they? True repentance is us admitting that we are sinners in need of a Savior. It's an admittance that our whole life posture, do you see this? Do you understand this? Our whole life posture needs changed in light of Christ. It's a letting go of our self-righteousness that says, I'm enough and I've done enough and God should be happy. And it's a trusting utterly in the life and death and resurrection of Christ and saying to him, you define my life. Me and my deeds do not. Remember that great hymn, My Hope is Built on Nothing Less? What's it say? My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus Christ, my righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but what? Holy lean on Jesus' name. That's our only plea before God. And repentance is necessary if we're going to be saved by God because It's the humble admittance of our sinfulness and our inability. Kent Hughes says this, It's important for us to see the close connection between repentance and forgiveness because while no amount of repentance can ever merit forgiveness in the sight of God, without repentance, no soul will ever be saved. Repentance is the telltale mark of the grace of God at work in our lives. Saving faith and true repentance are always found together. Saved souls are repentant souls. So we must see that repentance is not only something we do at conversion, but it ought to be the posture of the Christian life always. Like N.T. Wright says, Christian living is far more than repentance, but it is not less. We can even go far as to say that without ongoing repentance, there is no growth in Christ. For how can you grow if you aren't constantly renouncing and killing sin? It's impossible. How can you get more of him if you aren't renouncing that which keeps you from him? Many of you know the story of how on All Hallows' Eve in 1517, an upstart Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed his 95 Theses to the castle church door. You guys know that story, right? At Wittenberg, which of course sparked the Protestant Reformation, which we are as Baptist fruit. (coughs) But do you know what the very first thesis was? It says, our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. And so he did. Now you may have noticed that since the first of the year we've incorporated confession of sin and assurance of pardon into worship, right? I hope you've noticed that. Why do we do that? Well, there, there are many reasons. For one, the Bible commands that we confess to one another. We see corporate and individual Confession of sin in the Psalms and throughout Scripture. The church has been doing this for thousands of years. And because we want to teach you to incorporate repentance and confession of sin into your daily life. But confession of sin doesn't stand by itself when we do it, does it? It's followed by an assurance of pardon from God because while we confess our sins before Him, we do so in freedom and joy knowing He pardons our iniquity because of His great love and on the basis of Christ's person And deeds. Repentance must be the ongoing posture of the Christian. Make it your daily work, friend, for we sin how often? A thousand times a day. If you're a Christian, you must realize that when you first repented at conversion, that this was only the beginning of a life of repentance. Because we live in a fallen world and we're still sinners who sin and mortifying sin is a daily work if it is to be killed. The more we grow, the more we should recognize sin in us and hate that sin because we love our Savior more and we see Him as more beautiful than the sins that separate us from Him. Benjamin Sean gives this illustration that I think is helpful. He said, Imagine repentance as a man walking in one direction who suddenly realized that he is walking in the opposite direction from which he should be walking. So what does he do? He stops, he turns around. Then he begins walking in a new direction. It's a quick and simple process. He realizes, he stops, he turns. But imagine someone on a bicycle realizing he's going in the wrong direction. In one sense, it's still obvious. He stops, he does what? Turns around. He begins bicycling in a new direction, but it is a longer process. He has to come to a stop. Depending on his speed, that may take some time. The turning around also takes longer, and it takes longer to get up to a full speed in a new direction. The process is the same for a man in a car, but it takes longer than for the man on the bike, and it may require going somewhat out of his way before he gets back on the right track. The process is the same for a man in a speedboat. He has to slow down, enter the turn, and come back. But the time and distance required to do so is much longer than what is required for the man walking. You see? And on and on we could go. Now apply the image to repentance. Some sins are small and easy. Some sins are a little more difficult. Others take time to kill. And God works patiently in us to kill them, empowering us with his indwelling spirit because Christ doesn't just intend to save us from the wrath to come. He intends to make us new even now. But that won't happen apart from our intentional striving in light of his grace, you understand. The illustration shows that repentance does not work instantaneously, but over time. So the awareness of sin and the desire to change comes gradually. But we must recognize when we are going the wrong direction that we are, in fact, going the wrong way and admitted. That's difficult, yes? Which is why repentance is so rare. Who wants to admit they're wrong? Any of y'all? Who's who's here saying, I love admitting I'm wrong? But truly, the first people in the world who should be willing to repent should be who? Christians. The last people hesitant to admit they're wrong and embrace change should be Christians because why would we not repent? Just think about that. Truly, what makes us not want to repent? John's audience had to admit that the things that they were trusting in, like their ethnicity and their religious rituals, were not enough to save them. So they need to repent. Why do people fail to repent? Because they're justifying themselves. Is that not why? Because if you admit you're wrong, then it means you may lose something you think you need and you must admit that you aren't as put together as you've been trying to get people to believe. In other words, you have to be humble and vulnerable, and no one wants to do that because we're trying to justify ourselves before God and man. But Christians are already justified by God in Christ. So what is it we're holding on to exactly in our fear of repentance? Like if you come up with something you see the madness of this? Let me know. Well, what exactly, if we're justified by God in Christ already, what are we afraid of in our repentance? That people are going to think less of us, who gives a rip? <laughs> who cares? What are we trying to secure for ourselves exactly? I mean, for real, why are we so hesitant to repent and be weak and vulnerable if we simultaneously confess allegiance to the Christ who saves only the weak and hungry and unable. And that so strange? That's why I see the madness in my own heart. That's why I'm so irritated. <laughs> Repentance means we admit when we mess up, and guess what? That's okay. We mess up. You mess up? I mess up. Can I tell you something that's going to free you? You're jacked up. And I'm jacked up. And we mess up a lot it's bondage to be afraid to repent there's freedom to repent because we are placing our hopes on Christ not on our ability or deeds or what people think of us so we don't have to be lawyers for our sins we can freely repent and we'll always be forgiven that's more of the freedom there right you'll always be forgiven (laughs) so why not Isn't there tremendous freedom in that? In his wonderful book, Devoted to God, which I commend to you, Sinclair Ferguson says this. He says, there are no spiritual gains without pains. So we must be willing to act with spiritual violence against our sin. It's enmity against God, and it distorts His purpose for our lives. It offends Him, and it destroys us. Only when we grasp this will we begin to develop the mindset which the Holy Spirit seeks to produce in us. Spirit-led believers are willing to break the neck of sin or to stab it in the heart or to pull out the weeds and it, it sows. When we confess our sins, confess them for what they are and seek forgiveness and deliverance. Then we will make headway against them. Some people are proud of calling a spade a spade until it comes to the patterns of sin in their own lives. But only when these are exposed in their true colors are we able to overcome them. Mark it, friends. All spiritual advance Begins with a turning away from that which is hindering our obedience. If the Bible says it's a sin, guess what? It's a sin. No dancing around it. And if it's a sin, then it's killing us. And it's keeping us from fellowship with Christ and others. It thus deserves to be killed. No matter the pains that comes with that killing of sin. And why can we do it? (laughs) Because the indwelling spirit enables us. And the gospel informs us. And because we need no justification apart from who? Christ. But you see that John attaches fruit to repentance. This will be our third and final point quickly. We must respond by bearing fruit. Point three, we must respond by bearing fruit. When John calls the people brood of vipers, he exhorts them to do what, to, to do what instead of just fleeing from the wrath to come? <coughs> do you see what he tells them to do? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance because those who do not repent and do not bear fruit are the ones who will be cut down. See, for John, it isn't enough to just repent. He believes that true repentance leads to concrete actions. And it changed life. He believes that seeing the trajectory uh, you are on by nature apart from Christ and then seeing Christ's beauty and offer of forgiveness will will not only lead to repenting over sin but repenting over wrong living. And such recognition will lead to living the life Christ calls you to do and thus bear fruit. Repentance produces a life lived with a sense of responsibility before God, a reorientation of one's perspective, and is reflected in how one lives and treats others. John thinks the natural response to the offer of God's grace through Christ is a changed life that bears fruit, that testifies to the kingdom of God, and shines a light so others will glorify God also. John believes people should be able to look at the life of one who has truly repented and say, this is different. This is something only God can produce. This is someone who knows Christ. Because John believes when you look at a person, it'll be like when you look at a tree. You'll see fruit consistent with what it is. And if it's a tree that claims to have a root of the good soil of the gospel but produces no fruit, then it isn't the soil's fault, is it? Let's illustrate like this. Say I plant a tree in my backyard, which I would never do, and you come over and I say, I planted a tree. You must come see my new fruit tree. And I take you to the backyard, we come up to the tree, it's clear that's an apple tree. Like you can clearly see that it's an apple tree. Why? It has stinking apples on it, right? But wait a minute, I have a sign in front of the tree that says orange tree. Then I say, Isn't this a lovely orange tree? Look at all the delicious oranges that it's growing. You would think, if you don't already, that I was insane right? And you say, Vaughn, this is not an orange tree, it's an apple tree. And I say, I'm sorry, but the sign clearly says it's an orange tree. That's what it is claiming. You must be mistaken. No matter how much I try to tell you that it's an orange tree, the fact that is that it's bearing fruit consistent with what it is, right? Which is an apple tree. This is an undeniable fact of nature, right? Undeniable fact of nature. Trees bear fruit consistent with what they are. Yes. Apple trees don't bear oranges or peaches or plums. They bear apples. And if they bear no fruit, they aren't good because they aren't doing what they are meant to do. So it is with repentance. True repentance means we will bear fruit consistent with our profession of identification with Christ as our root. And this is fundamentally shown by how we treat people. What, what, What does good fruit look like? Doesn't John, he doesn't leave us hanging, right? He gives us a few examples in 10 through 14 of what fruit consistent with repentance looks like. Three sets of people asked John the same question. Did you notice? What then shall we do? Which, interestingly enough, is asked no less than eight times in Luke and Acts. So it's clearly an important question. And John responds by telling them what fruit of repentance looked like to the crowd. He says, if you have two tunics, what should you do with one of them? Give it away. If you have more than enough food, give some away to the tax collector who everyone aided. He says, stop taking advantage of people. Deal honestly. To the soldier, he says, stop extorting money. <coughs> Don't intimidate people. Don't defraud or abuse. And be content with your wages. Box summarizes John's response like this. John's response to the three groups says to be compassionate, loving, and fair to fellow human beings, not to take advantage of another or leave another in destitution for one's own gain. Rather, one is to be content with what one has, look to meet needs, rather than aggravate them that's the essence in essence those who have more than they need should do what share it with those who have nothing these examples show us that the gospel confronts us on a personal professional and political level so repentance should change our politics our relationships and our work it also shows that the gospel should cost us true repentance true fruit is costly john asks in essence What do you need two tunics for? Are you going to wear them at the same time? Or are you going to only wear one? And what's the answer? You should go wear the one, right? Well, give one away, he says. Are you really trying to hoard your extra tunic while people go cold? What do you need so much food for? Why is your pantry full while people go hungry? Give food away to the hungry. In other words, fruit consistent with repentance means ceasing to be so concerned about yourself. Yes? Is that not what we see? It means caring more about others than you do for your own personal wants, desires, and even needs. John says that fruit is a result of repentance, ceases to think first about self, and ceases trying to get what we want and ceases to strive for our own comfort and instead put others before self and the gospel and kingdom first. And we can look at these calls from John and we can think, as some do, He's talking to first century Jews, right? Not to us. And in one sense, that's true. In another, what he's saying is what Jesus said, what the Apostles said, and what the church has said for 2,000 years. What do you need two tunics for? Why hoard when there's people in need? What's that going to get you? Why deal dishonestly? Why seek your kingdom when Christ brought a better one to advocate for? Why put self first when Christ modeled and called for seeking last place? You know what selfishness and unforgiveness and self-advocacy and seeking first place, ignoring the marginalized and poor and widowed and oppressed looks like? It looks like bad fruit from a bad tree. Looks like a root check is needed. Looks like a desperate need for repentance to a gracious God who has provided us space and opportunities to do it in light of so great of gospel. Repentance must take hold in our hearts and minds because truly receiving Christ inevitably leads to a changed life. Do you agree with that? Do you believe truly receiving Christ inevitably leads to a changed life? And a changed life bears the good fruit of self-forgetfulness and of making disciples and of loving people more than we love ourselves and of costly discipleship and service. All of that is impossible to do on our own. But through the life, death, and resurrection and ascension of Christ, it's possible. It isn't easy, but it's possible through the power of Christ and the indwelling Spirit. So the question we must ask ourselves today in light of this passage is, have you repented? Have you truly repented? John is warning us and saying, you too will be judged. But Christ has come and he's provided a way because he himself is the way and he expects us to respond to the grace he offers and he expects us to be overwhelmed with his mercy toward us and be changed and bear fruit and strive to obey his commands and make repentance part of our daily work. If you're here and you've never truly repented, never truly repented, today's the day of salvation. Christ will save you and change you if you have but come to Him. Do not presume to rely on your past good deeds or your family history or your church attendance Lay all those filthy rags aside and come to Christ with your empty arms and he will be faithful to save you and change you and you can follow him in obedience of bearing fruit. And if you have repented, the question is this. Do you bear good fruit? Can people look at your life and how you treat people? How you treat the weakest people? Who could do nothing to benefit you? To the way you forgive and the way you talk about others and know to whom you belong based on the fruit that you bear? Do you make life about you or about Christ and others? Do you sacrifice for others or do you insist on your own way? Does your identification with Christ cost you because it should? Don't leave today without answering these questions because Christ has given you time in this moment to repent and believe or repent of not bearing fruit in keeping with repentance. Augustine once said, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance, but he has not promised tomorrow for your procrastination. So today's the day to reflect because you may not have tomorrow. Charles Spurgeon gives an illustration about uh, tree fruit, and uh, I'll share this with you and we'll uh, pray. A tree has been planted, he said, out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Whether it has apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard, and when the springtime comes, there is no bud, and when the summer comes, there is no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it's dead. And you are correct, it is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is proof that it is dead. So too it is with the professor. If he is life, that life must give fruit. If not fruit, works. If his faith has a root, but if there be no works, then depend upon it, the inference that he is spiritually dead is certainly a correct one, do you see? It is not the leaf or the apples that make the tree alive, it's the root. The root gives life which produces fruit. So it is with Christ. Who gives us life that we may reflect his kingdom and bear fruit for his namesake and glory in keeping with true repentance.